0: Uh, good morning everyone it's good to to meet you and to be able to worship with you Uh, before i read our passage here today i just wanted to take a, a few moments to respond to what eugene was saying uh, they did compare us a little bit in college, and I just want to confess, when they compared me, even in a little way to Eugene, it was the greatest compliment of my entire life. And I felt so like, utterly humbled and flattered that they would even connect us in such a way. And secondly, I did have a black belt, but you guys, probably half the people in this room have a black belt in karate. As long as you just give the school money, they just give you a black belt, so it's not really much of an accomplishment at all. Um, but I'm thankful to be here, and just want to thank Pastor D.L. and the leadership for allowing me to share God's Word. Uh, I, there's so much to say, but I don't want to take up too much time, but Harvest is such a wonderful and fruitful and gospel-centered church. Um, Pastor D.L. in this church is not just, uh, I, just someone that I, I like hanging out with, but he is someone that I admire and uh, learn from and feel sharpened by. Uh, the brother is so holy, every time I talk to him, I just feel like such a, a, a just like so inadequate, <laughs> and I feel like I need, to, I need to pray more, I need to repent more, but that's a good thing, and he sharpens me in that way, and so I'm so thankful and excited to, to be able to worship with you all here today. Um, let me read the verses for us, Psalm chapter 3. I, I know we're going through a, or Harvest is going through a series in the book of Psalms, and so I... I felt that I could share in light of a quite challenging and different year in 2020 up until now to share about what Psalm 3 has to speak to us about. So let me read the verses for us, and then we'll get right into the message. <clears throat> Psalm chapter 3, this is King David, and this is God's word for us today. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I laid down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many, of, of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. you breathe the teeth; You break the teeth of the wicked." Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. And this is God's word for us today. So, Psalm chapter 3 is a powerful passage and chapter that talks essentially about the fears of King David. And we're talking and going to discuss together, you and I here today, from looking at Psalm chapter 3, the nature and the impact of fear or stress and anxiety and it's such a, a common, if not mundane experience, but it is an experience that all of us can relate to. You and I go through all kinds of different experiences of fear, of anxiety, of stress. Even as I reflect upon my life here of a young, old, young age of 44 years old, I realize there are different seasons of stress that I had. I had social anxiety when I, I, when I was in uh, middle school and high school. I had career anxiety as I was about to graduate college. Now that I'm married with two kids, I have anxiety about my two girls. You could ask my wife Kathy, I'm the helicopter dad. Other things I don't really care about, but I just worry that they're just gonna fall and hurt themselves. So I have all kinds of stress and anxiety. And in fact, I would argue that you would too. You may stress about getting good grades or getting into college or transitioning in life, stress about not getting married, stress the fact that you are married, stressed about not getting pregnant or stress the fact that you're about to have your first kid. Maybe it's finances, maybe it's acceptance and people. No matter what, we all have a level and experience of fear and anxiety and stress, and Psalm chapter 3 speaks directly into this. I read once that Eskimos have 40 different words for the reality of snow. and. What this one article was saying was that when there's so many different synonyms and words for the same common reality, it tells you that that culture really cares about that reality. And in the same way, in our English language, there are so many cousins and so many words that express fear and anxiety. We can talk about it in the sense of uh, nervousness, talk about it about being tense or uptight, uneasy. Fearful—they're all different expressions. They're cousins. There's a large overlap, and when there's so many experiences of the same reality, it tells us that we live in a stressful world. In fact, in 2015, I believe, um, you know, there was a spike in a chart that said, especially among our youth, that there is a spike in the level of loneliness and stress and depression among our youth because I think that was the year that the iPhone became popular. You know, technology is correlated with this, and so you and I could understand and relate to anxiety. And I pray that the gospel could speak into your life with your own experience. And Psalm 3 helps us to relate to this and talk about it, to process our experiences of fear and anxiety by asking three questions of this passage. One, we're going to ask, what do our fears tell us about ourselves as a human being? as a broken, fractured person. He's trying to follow Jesus. And if you're not following Jesus today, we welcome you. Maybe you're skeptical about Christianity, maybe you came to church and you fell away, which is okay. This is a great church to be part of, but I pray that you could also relate and see that the gospel has something for you as a non-believer, as a skeptic, who is bright and smart, has good questions, but Christianity may offer you something that the world doesn't. So what do we learn about ourselves? Secondly, we're going to ask, what do fears tell us about God? about the Christian God, about his character, his purpose, and plan. Thirdly, we're going to consider, what do you do with fears? Do you take medication? Do you go to a massage place to just let it all out? Do you, do you work out? Do you, do you binge eat? How do you process your fear and anxiety so that you don't implode or so that your marriage is so stressed or that, so you don't get angry at people? We'll answer those three questions here. What do they tell us about ourselves? What do fears tell us about God? And thirdly, what do you do with them? So let's look at this first together. What do fears, your anxiety, tell us Tell us about ourselves? Now, I mentioned this, but fears are a common experience of life. They're not necessarily natural because when God created Adam and Eve back in the book of Genesis before sin messed everything up, He didn't create Adam and Eve to be natural warriors or people to stress out. There is a perfection of time and existence and being, so it wasn't natural for us to stress and to be overly anxious people. But after sin entered into this world, I would argue that, fit, that, that fear and anxiety is not just, it's not just um, common, but in fact, it is universal. Everyone knows what it's like to be stressed out or to be anxious. Everyone knows what, it like, what it's like to be scared. And I mentioned this in the first service, but our industry in a capitalist society in America has spent billions of dollars really capitalizing on the experience of fear and being scared. You know, you could look at medication, you could look at psychiatric help, look at counseling services, Uh, even being in Orlando where there's a big economic boom or thriving economy based on uh, theme parks. All these rides and roller coasters are built on this idea of being scared. One of my favorite rides at Disneyland that we just went to this past week is a haunted mansion. Why do we pay so much money to stand in hot and humid weather? And I forgot how humid that Florida actually is. You stay there in line for an hour just to be scared. It's part of our culture. It's part of our reality. There was one study given by this company called Bain that in 2019 into 20, this one survey that was nationwide said the number one experience that people and employers are experiencing today is panic and fear. The great novelist Stephen King, if you ever read him and not necessarily advocating for his books, but Stephen King said something and he was onto something when he wrote, I like to scare people and people love to be scared. And I think he's right because that's exactly what we get in Psalm chapter 3. What do fears tell us about ourselves? Well, let's read verses one to two because that shows us the experiences and fears of King David. Verse one says, "O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me, many are saying of my soul, Here is no salvation for God, for him and God." Now these verses are knit together in what they call Hebrew poetry, this sort of technique called parallelism, which basically says, "I'm going to highlight something really important to you in this. Hebrew poetic tool called parallelism. And what he does is that he intertwines and knits together verses 1 to 2 with this one word, many. It's woven together so eloquently. It says right there, many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul. And it conveys to us the heavy and suffocating experience of King David, his experience of stress. You know, a psalm The Psalms are wonderful because the theologian John Calvin once said, the book of Psalms gives us the anatomy of all parts of the soul. Verses 1 to 2 show us how deep King David's fears are. And one of the things that the book of Psalms does for us is that it gives us permission to feel. Because some of us think as mature Christians, you're never supposed to worry. You're never supposed to feel anything, almost as if you're supposed to be stoic and robotic. But the book of Psalms gives the anatomy of all parts of the soul so that I believe a mature and strong Christian is, are, is really good at processing your emotions, experiencing the way that God has created you to be, and being very honest about this. Even later on in verse 7, David is honest about his justice and anger and says, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek, you break the teeth of the wicked. And you read this and he says, that's not very loving or very Christ-like, but at least he's very honest. He says, I pray that these thousands of people, can you break their teeth? Can you smash their teeth in? And we could talk about why it's so like visceral and so visual and so harsh in these verses, but at least it gives us permission to feel as 21st century modern people. And when we look at David's fears, his honest and real fears, we'll see this, that it tells us about ourselves in this way. In verses 1 to 2, there are two different types of fears, two different types of anxiety, two different types of stress, I would say. Now, there's different ways to say this, but verse 1 is more surface level. Verse 2 is a little bit deeper. Verse 1 is about your external circumstances, But verse two is something about your internal experience. The verse one fear is about the danger around King David, but verse two is about the vulnerability that he feels. In other words, the two layers of fears that we all go through one is circumstantial, the other is about identity. Now, how do I apply this, or what do I mean? Verse one is more about danger, more about his external and more circumstantial. The psalmist there says, many are my enemies, many are my foes. Many are rising against me, you know, they're out to get me. He's talking about the danger around him in the circumstances that he finds himself in. There are many people around him, and I would argue that in some ways, the circumstances and fears you have around you can actually be a good thing. It can be positive. If there's a car racing towards you, you want to be scared and jump out because your fears will be about self-preservation. They can identify a world that actually is not good. You know, if there's a dangerous circumstance with my children, I would want to protect them. If a burglar robs your home and breaks in, you want to be scared, your adrenaline will rush, you begin to sweat. Those, I think, are good things because it shows that we're human, we're honest about life, and we're not in control of this world. So in some sense, verse 1, circumstantial fears is somewhat positive. It can be constructive. It can be about self-preservation. But verse 2, verse 2 is a little bit more nuanced, a little bit deeper. You have to be a little bit more in touch with your emotions, resonate with your experiences. Verse 2 points to the reality and stress within you. Verse 2 is more internal. It's not attacking the body. It's attacking your soul. It reads as this, many are saying of my soul, There's no salvation for him. And that word there, soul, is basically your essential human existence as a human being. That word soul there is talking about a person's deep needs, beliefs, and desires. In other words, your identity. So when it says in verse 2, they're attacking my soul, they're attacking King David and who he is and all he stands for in his identity. The commentator, Jared Wilson, said this, To speak to another soul is to exercise influence and control over that person's deepest level. You know, friends, is there one thing in life that you feel like you're known for? No. Do you feel like you're the best looking? Raise your hand. (laughs) No, don't raise your hand. But if you feel like you're the most attractive, the best dressed, do you feel like you're the most charismatic, the funniest, the smartest, the most successful All of us, by virtue of being human, tend to find some sort of identity marker to say, this is what I'm known for. This is why I exist. I'm rich and powerful. I'm good-looking. I have the best family. I have a lot of wealth and resources. I'm really smart. I went to the best schools. Whatever it is for you, you tend to find your identity in something other than Jesus Christ. And imagine if somebody comes up to you and says, whatever you think you're best at, you're actually not that good it would devastate you. It wouldn't just hurt you, it would crumble you. Now, I sort of used Pastor Deal on the first service, but all pastors can relate to this. We want to be good leaders, we want to love people, we want to be great preachers, and it's almost if somebody comes up to us, you're not really good at preaching the Bible. And we know that no one does a perfect sermon, but we at the same time feel like it really hurts and it really gets us. That's what verse 2 is. Whatever you think your heart is committed to as identifying you, And the community and people and society says, that's not who you are. You're not good at this. King David was supposed to be a godly man. He was the king of Israel over God's people. He was supposed to be the king representing God to the world. And people are saying, there's no salvation for him. It's not people attacking around him. It's people who are attacking within him, his identity. When David's attackers say, God will not save him, David is saying, That hits me at the core of my existence. And do you know what happens? It doesn't just break you. It shatters you. It devastates you. And all of us have that potential to do this. That's why verse 2 is deeper than verse 1. Verse 1 is about dangers around you. Verse 2 is about your identity and vulnerability within you. Ed Welch, this counselor from CCEF, said, Danger points to the threatening world around us, but vulnerability points to ourselves. And he gives this illustration, and it says, imagine that a car races past you, and it's very dangerous. So your first fear around you means that you jump out to save and preserve your life. But after the car whizzes past you, there's a sense of vulnerability, and there's still a lingering feeling to say, that was really close. I almost got hit. I feel really vulnerable. There's a level of anxiety, and whenever you cross the road a second time, it's going to be kind of scary. That's something that's internal. So what do our fears tell us about ourselves? Verse 1 and 2, that is surface level, and verse 2 is deeper. What does it tell us about just being human? One, it says that we're not in control of our lives. Most of the world is outside of our control. 98% of this world, you can't control. It's only your concern. You can pray about it, but you can't control it. And this is something deeper for those of us who've grown up in the church. What do your fears tell about you? Ed Walsh says this, your anxiety, your fears are a stone's throw away from a potential idol. Does that make sense? A stone's throw away. In other words, follow your anxiety, it may lead you to a potential idol in your life. And this is why a stone's throw away, more than any other emotion, fear can tell us not just what we love, but what we potentially worship. Now, we're talking about an intense anxiety and constant fear and anxiety, not just occasional kind of worry, but a deep anxiety. So if you're constantly worried about money, then it may say that money is a potential idol. If you're constantly worried about being invited and being accepted by people, it may be a potential idol of people. If you're constantly thinking about your children, and this is a nuanced one, because we have to think about our children, parents out there, but if 90% of your resources and your mental real estate is devoted towards your children and not allowing you to freely love people around you, especially at a certain season in your life, maybe, just maybe, you could be open to the fact that it's a potential idol. Oftentimes, as you can tell, the good things of this world are the greatest occasion for our sin, money, power, success, career. If you daydream about being successful, moving up the corporate ladder, having 20 people under you that you can command, and that you daydream about that, you have a moment to sip a coffee or a drink and rest, and your mind naturally floats to those areas, you potentially may have that as a potential idol because you stress about it, you're anxious about it. Will this happen to me? Will I be able to get this? That's what fears tell us about ourselves, where our lack of trust and potential lack of faith is. In other words, your fears act as arrows or indicators that point to a potential idol in your life. Follow your fears and you may find a sin in your life. Follow your anxieties and it may be the best roadmap to a potential idol and what you value. In other words, fear communicates what we ultimately love more than Jesus, possibly. And fear says that what I value has the potential of being lost. And more immediately, it's at risk of being taken away. That's why we stress and that's why we fear. Friends, the point of this is that through our lives, we all have fears, and the question is, what do they tell us about our faith, about our makeup, about our dependency? And it says that we are finite, we're broken, we're imperfect, we're not in control of our lives, and as a Christian, it could tell you potentially what you worship more than Jesus Christ. It tells us that our anxiety is basically an alarm that says there's a potential sin that is deep in your heart. At one point in our culture, did you know that in America, and I just read this from a psychiatric journal, that all adults, all adults, were categorized in some form of fear. They're either neurotic, which means that you are afraid, but sort of still in touch with reality, or you're categorized as being psychotic, which means that you're really afraid, but you're out of touch with reality. But every one of us in America were categorized in one or two. I was told that the largest category of psychiatric disorders in our country, the largest category of psychiatric disorders, is fear. OCD is fear run amok, out of control. Because it shows us in this world, we try to be God of our lives, but we're not. We're meant to be dependent. We're meant to turn to God. We're meant to live for His purpose and His kingdom. And when we try to take God out of His place and be our own gods by controlling and manipulating and thinking that we're sovereign— that's when we'll go into deep stress and anxiety because our fears tell us potentially what an idol is, but that we're also finite, dependent, broken, and much of life, if not all of it, is not ultimately in control. But secondly, what do our fears tell us about the God we worship or the God of Psalm 3? Well, verses 3 to 4 give us a clue of who God is and what fears tell us. It says there in verses 3 to 4, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. Now, when we look at this, David is reminded of who God is and his character. So, David's fears tell us about who God is for him. The rest and comfort for David was to look above and beyond himself, his resources, his abilities, and circumstances to the God of the universe. He has created him and is in control of all things. David's confidence rested. Not ultimately in himself, but in this God who is a shield and his glory. And as he looks to God, he begins to pray and he says, I cried aloud to the Lord. David knew that God was bigger than his circumstances, deeper than his depression, deeper than anything that he goes through. Some of you may have heard this lady, Corrie ten Boom, who was a Holocaust survivor. She was sentenced with her sister to death because she was hiding Jews during World War II. And she was quoted famously as saying, as she looked around the atrocities of the Holocaust, in the depths of despair, God is deeper still. And it's not to minimize your suffering and your anxiety and your stress and your tension in relationships, it's not to minimize that, it's to be honest about it and says, yes, there is a world that is scary. There is a world in which you stress and it's hard and it's difficult. Sometimes it even seems hopeless, which is the main characteristic of people who are depressed. But what Psalm 3 shows us and our fears tell us about God is that in the depths of despair, God is deeper still. He's a shield and he's also your glory. What this passage challenges us to consider about God is that maybe the reason we fear and stress and are so anxious all the time is because a God is not deep, but it's really shallow. And our fears implicitly say, God you're a shallow God. You're going to mess these things up. Did you know that what your fears and anxieties tell you about God is this? It may say, God, you're perfect. You're powerful. But when you stress and get anxious, you're saying, God, you're not wise. You may be all powerful, but you're going to mess up my life. That's what fears tell you about your quote-unquote doctrine of God. God. Not the one who's all controlled and all perfect and wise, but every time we stress, did you know that your stress is a projection or a prophecy of the future? Your anxiety says, I'm predicting the future and the future is going to be bad. And that means your doctrine of God, who you believe about God, is saying, you may be all powerful, God, but because I think the future is going to be bad, you're not very wise. You're going to mess things up. But that's not the God of Psalm 3. That's not the biblical God. God is powerful, but he's fully wise. He's in control of all things. David has a clear and deep sense of who God is, and he describes and says, He's my shield, and he's my glory. Did you know that, according to one commentator, shields back then in ancient Near Eastern context, in the days of Israelites, shields back then came in all kinds of different sizes and shapes. And you probably could see this from medieval times. There's small shields, there's big shields. This shield here has an interesting language, according to Psalm chapter 3, because it's not a small shield, it's just not a large shield. It's an all-encompassing shield. David says, you are a shield about me. In other words, there's this weird shield that David says that just isn't in front of him or to the side, doesn't cover his head and just his legs. God is such a big God, he's deeper still, that he's a shield that surrounds him. That's bigger than him encompasses him, around him, it's almost like a force field, but the purpose and the plan and the character and love of God that God, that David knew, meant that he felt so safe with many foes rising against him, many people who are trying to attack him. He says, in the midst of that anxiety, he's able to sleep, verse 5, because God is a shield about me. In other words, David hides in God. I read this a Christian book by a pastor, and he was I think it was him sort of paraphrasing, but he says he was smaller in high school, but he was quick, and he actually made his high school football team, and he made it as a running back. And he says, one of the reasons I was able to do pretty well is because I was small. Now, I know nothing about football, so I don't even know if that makes sense. But he said, I was small, and I was quick and agile, so I was hard to hit. But he said there's this one blocker who is ginormous. He was the biggest blocker on the team, and we could call him Billy. He was like, Big Billy. And he says, every time I had the ball to run, I felt so safe from the other team because I would just hide behind Big Billy. And whenever I ran, Big Billy would block and knock the other team away so I could run towards a path of glory. He felt safe. He felt confident. He was radical. He went all in. Why? Because he felt safe being shielded about him by the largest blocker on his team. David in some way says, I'm going to go out there into the world. I'm going to face my enemies. I'm not going to suppress my enemies. I'm not going to put them to side. I'm going to face the reality of my situation. It's hard. It's dangerous. It's stressful. But I'm going to hide, and I'm able to do this because I could hide behind God who is my shield about me. He protects me. He's in control. He loves me. He sees me where I am. He understands what I'm going through. But secondly, who is God and what do our fears tell us about God? It's not just that he's a shield that can protect you because God is in control and loves you. He's also glory. Friends, do you know what glory is? That word in the Hebrew, which is the word kabod, glory just means something that's heavy and weighty. You know, somebody who has significance and gravitas. Now, one of the illustrations I like is is to think about when you drop a pebble in water, The water ripples and there's waves because the pebble drops down to the bottom. Because in some sense, the pebble has more glory than water. It's heavier, has more force. And then when you take a hammer, you could take the hammer and you could shatter the pebble. Well, why can you do that? Because the hammer in some level has more glory. It's weightier, it's heavier. And what David is saying here is that the heaviest reality, the most important reality in my life, my kabod, my glory, is God himself. He's my heaviness. David is saying God is my dignity. David is saying God is my weight. He's my honor. He's my significance. In other words, David is saying my sense of worth is in God's glory. What drives my life is God's glory. Now, if you think about it for a moment, that's a tremendous statement because God is David's glory, and David is probably the most powerful, richest, connected man in the entire bible one of them at least now paul tripp used to say that regular people like you and me we all live in the in the mundane you know none of us will probably be written the history books none of us will probably win the nobel prize and it's not because they are not beautiful and gifted people he's just trying to be honest about that and i agree with him and i would say none of us will be as successful or have the same influence or achievements as king david david had it all i mean he was literally a king he had riches he had women He had power, he had connections, he had influence, he was hobnobbing with the elite. He had anything that on a worldly sense, anybody would strive to have, the best credentials. And do you know what somebody as accomplished as King David says? God is still by far the heaviest, weightiest, most important reality in my life. And that's what drove David in his worldview. That's why it becomes very practical See, the key to Christianity in this one application is not to say, stop loving money, stop loving power, stop loving success, and just love God. It's not that simple. Success, money, power, kids and family, marriage and relationships, love and romance, they're all really good things. So Christianity doesn't say, stop loving those and just love God. No, it's saying, just make sure you love God the most. So that through money, love, time, gifts, power, relationships, the glory of God drives everything that you do. See, if money is your glory, and money is the heaviest thing in your life, that means everything that you do will be geared towards money. You're going to work harder. You're going to put your body under strain. You'll think and stress about money. You'll be stingy. You'll hoard all your money. You'll look at your budget every night. But if money is the heaviest thing in your life, is your glory, then it'll drive everything that you do. If love and romance is your glory and the heaviest thing in your life, you're going to do everything in order to get into a relationship. You'll try to make yourself more attractive. You'll try to be as charismatic as you could be. You'll join every dating app, Coffee Meets Bagel, Hinge. I don't know what they use over here in Florida. But you'll use every app there in order to find a relationship. And when you're not in a relationship, you feel like a nobody. And when you're in a relationship, you feel like you hit the lottery because love is the heaviest, glorious thing in your life. And that's what the Bible calls idolatry. Because the heaviest thing in your life that drives everything should be who God is and his significance, purpose, plan, and power for you. And David says, God is my glory. That's what our fears tell us about God. He's a shield about me. He's the most important reality for me. He's my shield and he's my glory. But last but not least, if fears tell us that we're finite and that we're broken and that we're dependent, if fears tell us what a potential idol may be, And secondly, if fears tell us that God is good, he's our shield, and he's my glory, okay, what do we practically do? What can we do with our fears and anxieties? Now, how do we deal with the stress? Now, generally, in my experience, both in my life but pastoring churches, people process anxiety in two ways. They either suppress it because they're like, Christians shouldn't be stressed out, they should be strong, or they just want to ignore it. So they suppress their fears, or they vent their fears. In other words, they pretend it's not there, or they actually unleash it, and they yell, and they get into arguments, and they get passive-aggressive. So they either suppress their fears or they vent their fears. But what David shows us is that you have to pray your fears, and you share your fears with the community. So don't suppress it, don't vent it, but share it, and then you pray it. You know, sometimes when we're stressed out, we do take matters into our own hands. We try to control our circumstances. That's why OCD is fear run amok, because you're controlling every little detail. But that's why control and fear oftentimes are two sides of the same coin. Some of you will say, I have control issues, but in reality, you may have fear issues. And there are legitimate fears about your family, your health, your education, your future. You fear being poor, you'll control every penny in your life. And so people handle stress and fear in different ways. And this one counselor, Todd Stride from CCEF, has shared in his experience counseling many people on anxiety. He says, apart from the gospel, apart from Christianity, the two most typical ways to deal with your anxiety is this. Avoidance and control. Not really bad. Not really bad. Because sometimes wisdom says avoid those situations and also control it. Be good stewards of it. But if you leave it at that, then you have an approach to your anxiety that's not necessarily Christian and far short of a life-giving, thriving, gospel-centered life. But Todd Stride said two responses to human anxiety are typically avoidance and control. And he says both attempt to keep their fear from happening. Avoidance and control, the problem is that they're very effective. He says you can't die on an airplane if you never get on an airplane. It works. Your child will not get kidnapped if you never let your child out of sight because you're controlling everything about your children. So they actually temporarily work. You'll never have social embarrassment, you'll never be made fun of, if you never actually go out into the community and hang out with people and make friends. But the problem is that it's a godless approach to anxiety, and he says there's a deep cost that comes with that approach. And that cost is that your world becomes smaller and smaller because you're consumed by small details, but your anxiety magnifies that, to a gigantic, enormous scale. And your world becomes smaller and smaller. See, Todd Stride talked about this woman he was counseling, a mother, and obviously a wonderful mother, I guess, and, but she was deeply stressed about her baby not breathing at night. So she would wake up every 30 minutes for months on end. You know, marriage is taking a toll, her health is taking a toll, she can't function, she was doing nothing else except worrying and stressing about her baby for months about breathing, and there was no medical reason for her to do. So she'd wake up 30 minutes and see if the baby was moving up and down, or put her finger under the nose to make sure her baby was breathing, and occasionally wake the baby up just to make the baby cry so that she would know and be reassured that the baby is alive. It's not wrong to care about the life of your baby, but when it's extreme, then it takes over your life. Her world became really small. She wasn't loving people. She wasn't out there in society. She wasn't evangelizing. She wasn't experiencing all that life had to give her in the way that God created it because for months on end, she was consumed by the breathing of her baby. Your world becomes smaller. Same thing with any reality in life. If your world is about money and you stress about money, you'll devote 80, 90% of your mental real estate and your resources and relationships to making sure that your budget will be balanced. If your life is consumed and you stress about moving up the corporate ladder or becoming successful or your business that you own actually doing really well, success which is really good and fine, the Bible affirms that, but if it consumes you as an idol and you worry and stress about that, And then everything that you do, 89% of your resources, your time, relationships, your mental real estate will be devoted to this. It makes your world really small because all you think about is success. Avoidance and control. The Bible offers a different solution according to Psalm 3. We don't just avoid our fears or control our fears. We pray our fears and then we share them. David here expresses with strong emotion his fears in verses 1 to 2. And then we see in verse 5 that David was able to lay down to sleep. That's pretty remarkable. If you had thousands of people trying to take your life, would you be able to sleep at night? What was the key? Why was David to say, many foes are against me. My own son Absalom is out trying to kill me. So he has a son trying to kill him. He has his armies that turned against him. People are trying to literally take his life. In verse 5, I'm able to sleep and wake up. Now, I know when I get stressed over small things, I can't sleep at night. I'm on sleep medication. I wake up on hours on end. I've done a sleep study. I get counseling for this. When I get stressed out, I can't sleep at night. I've never had anything that David had, and yet in verse 5, he's able to sleep. Do you know why? Because David didn't avoid his fears. He didn't try to control his fears. He prayed them, and he shared them. David had armies that were after him. He was honest about this. His son was against him. And yet, in verse 5, he was able to lay down and sleep. This is the God whom David looks to. He prays to God and shares his fears of God and people. He says in verse 4, I cried aloud to God. He was honest about it and he lifted up. Did you know that a good Christian could actually be honest about your circumstances? David is so emotional in all the psalms that we see in the book of Psalms. He's honest about this. He says in other psalms like 73, why do non-Christians, why are they more successful than me? He's honest about his anxiety, his fears, his hurts, but rather than suppressing them inventing them, he prays them and he shares them. And verse 4 says, I'm going to pray for this. But do you know how David prays? He doesn't just say, God, make the suffering stop. David prays, God, make yourself bigger in the midst of my sufferings. I was told when in America, Westerners like you and me for the most part, when we pray about suffering, we pray for suffering to stop. But what I heard about missionaries in China They pray that God will give them strength to get through suffering. We pray for the cessation of suffering. Missionaries and other cultures pray to learn from suffering. And I think that's what David is sharing us. Paul Tripp has said this. In our suffering, often we want the grace of release instead of the grace of refinement, that God uses suffering to shape us and make us holier and to hold on to Jesus. We cry out for God's grace when we don't realize that in our current experiences, we're getting that grace in that very moment. We oftentimes pray, Lord, help us by stopping the suffering, rather than, Lord, teach me in the midst of suffering. David prays for God to be bigger, his character, his purpose, his power. Just as the Christian educator Henrietta Merritt once said, she says, when I pray, I feel like I'm reaching up into heaven and I'm shaking the throne of God. She prayed mighty prayers because she had a mighty God. We pray our fears, but we also share our fears. So what do you do with your fears? Don't just pray about them, which is good. Place them into God's hands, but share it with one another. Now, this is implicit because David's experience is written down in the book of Eternity, Psalm chapter 8. So he's sharing it with Christians and churches throughout the ages. But it's also implied in verse 8, where even in this moment, David still cares about other people. He says salvation belongs to the Lord but your blessing be on your people. So you're trying to share this with people. So one practical thing you can do that's implicit when when you go through anxiety and you have a moment of stress and anxiety and fear, pray them to God, but share them in community. You are meant to live life in community to thrive. Share what you're going through. Ask someone else to pray for you. Ask someone to speak truth into your life, to be aware, to walk with you through this life. Pray your fears and you share them. Because at the end of the day, friends, When it comes to stress and anxiety, the center of this issue is gonna be a matter of trust and faith. In that moment of deep stress and anxiety, that moment of deep fear, trust is at the center. Trust and faith drive the problem and a solution. If you trust in yourself, your world will shrink and you'll begin to implode and become brittle. But in that moment of stress, if you trust God without even knowing the answer and you pray them and you share them and you trust God, God will expand your world and set you to live a life of freedom to radically love other people for the kingdom of God. Trust in yourself in the moment of anxiety leaves no other possibility than to shrink your world. You have to shoulder the responsibility. You have to ensure success and protect and manage yourself. You have to avoid injury and embarrassment. You have to create a very small and manageable world. But in that moment of stress, if you trust God, it will drive an expansion for the kingdom full of grace, truth, and love. God shoulders responsibility and uses you to carry it out, to protect you and me. Did you know that there's only one man in this entire world who understands every form of stress and anxiety and fear that you did not have? There's only one man that knows every stress and anxiety that you have, and yet he didn't sin. That person's name is Jesus. Jesus had every reason to be scared. And I think as a human, in some moments, he was scared. The garden in Gethsemane, before he's dying on the cross for you and me, I think he said, God, take this cup away from me. He was really scared. So being scared isn't a sinful, in itself... Jesus can empathize being 100% human with your experiences of anxiety, fear, and stress. He had the deepest of the 12 disciples turn against him. He had the armies come and kill him. He had all kinds of experiences from a young boy in the 33 years he lived his life. He had all kinds of experiences that you and I go through, and yet he understands and didn't sin. Jesus, the Savior, the Son of God, came into this world, and he understands your fears. He understands that the world could be a scary place. He understands that there's a lot of questions that you have about the future and God is not giving you a clear roadmap because God is saying, I may not give you every answer to what the future holds, but I'm giving you the best answer and that I'm always with you in my son, Jesus Christ. Do you know that's how it works? Your little kid, five-year-old, gets lost in the mall or over at the park goes up to a security guard. A security guard is not going to be, okay, five-year-old, here's the map to find where your parents are, here's the exit. They don't want a solution. All the five-year-old wants is mommy or daddy, and then the comfort and security kick in. It's the same way with us as the children of God. You could have a roadmap of all the twists and turns of the next 40, 50 years of your life. You will still go down a path of anxiety and stress and fear unless you know the most important answer that the next 40, 50 years of your life, God and His Son Jesus Christ is going to walk with you, and Jesus fully understands what you're going through. Even in our passage when it says, you strike all my enemies on the cheek. Ultimately, you trace that. You strike all my enemies. Did you know the greatest enemy that you and I have are not armies, but it's our very own sin. And God struck our greatest enemy down, broke its teeth on the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus, the perfect sinless man who died for you and me, who felt every emotion and fear that we could have felt, but never sinned. And God struck our greatest enemy on sin by pouring out His wrath upon Jesus Christ. Jesus who died on the cross and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And God forsook Him because of your sin and mine, our rebellion. God struck down our greatest enemy on Him. God wasn't a shield for Jesus on the cross, but he poured his wrath and just punishment on Jesus for you and me so that now Jesus Christ can be our shield in life. We are united to him, just like that one pastor who was united to Big Billy running through the other team. We can run through life in that way. God wasn't a shield for Christ so that Christ could be a shield for us. God, in some ways, showed his greatest and clearest picture of glory because God is our shield and glory upon the cross, where love and justice cohere, where mercy reigns, where you see the perfect execution of these realities of life that come together so harmoniously and poetically upon the cross to show that the sinless Savior has died, that the King came down and died a criminal death, and it coheres and says, this is the ultimate picture of my glory. You want to ascend to greatness, you have to descend in humility and service on the cross of Jesus Christ, That is where we see the glory. That is God's guarantee to say, I will never let you go. I know this world is scary, and I know what you're going through, but the cross shows I have committed my only begotten Son to you, and therefore I committed myself to you. I will walk with life, in life, with you through and through. Just as the Apostle Paul in Romans 8 says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor present things nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord because we are forever united to Jesus, the one who walks with us empathetically, powerfully, and lovingly to get us through this fearful and scary world that's broken and riddled with sin. Brothers and sisters, let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you so much We thank you so much for your word because it is honest about life, it is realistic about what we face, and yet it offers us something that the world can't even imagine to give us true resource, a true everlasting sustaining grace in the person and work of Jesus Christ for us. Lord, we live in a world in which there's so much uncertainty and we feel many fears and go through many experiences of anxiety and stress and at times they're understandable and they're good but other times it grips us and captures us and help us Lord I pray to grow out of this so that we know that an all powerful heavenly father as yourself God sent his only son Jesus to die on the cross for us the guarantee of our faith the guarantee of your love the clearest picture of your glory, to know that we are forever united to you, adopted as your children, to know that we could call you forevermore Father. We thank you so much. May this provide comfort and healing security. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.